Hi, Calvin Qualis, founder and CEO of Scotch Quarter. What I love about beauty is that just like beauty isn't just lipstick and makeup, grooming isn't just a haircut and shave. And in beauty, we have the opportunity to motivate and inspire our customers and community to kind of feel their best and show up as their best. From New York City, you are listening to Beauty Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Welcome to today's episode of Beauty Is Your Business. We are really excited to be able to speak with Scotch Porter and founder Calvin. So welcome to the show today, Calvin. Thanks for having me. And as always, I am joined by my colleague and business partner, confidant for sure, Denise Dente. Hey, Denise. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Calvin. Hey. Calvin, when we found out that we were going to have you on the show, we just lost our mind. We have been following Scotch Porter. It's been an epic rise of a brand, and we are really looking forward to kind of unpacking that journey that you've been on and some of the recent exciting news that has happened for the brand. So to kick us off, can you walk us through really how you got started and the founding and genesis of Scotch Porter? Sure, absolutely. Our story really does start with me being a kid growing up in my mom's shop and my brother and I spending a ton of time there. And uh, as a kid, he kind of hated it, right? Because like what kid wants to spend his evenings and weekends in the barbershop, kind of sweeping up here and running errands, right? But sort of looking back and in hindsight, what I really appreciated the most is that I've, I've always been a pretty sort of intuitive, insightful kid and in that I would notice customers coming into the shop, not necessarily feeling their best. But they'd sit in my mom's chair, one of the other barbers and stylist chairs, sort of be transformed, get up, look in the mirror, pop their collar, walk out with an entirely new step. So that really stuck with me. And what resonated with me the most was this ability that my mom and some of the other barbers and stylists had in terms of helping people to feel better about themselves. That stuck with me. Went off to college. Uh, like most college kids, broke, frustrated, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, even you know around senior year. And it seemed like everyone around me had it all figured out. They knew that they were going to get married, have, you know, two kids, a dog, right? Live in the suburbs. And I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't even know what I wanted to have for like lunch, right? And so in many ways kind of felt like a wanderlust. And in some ways even felt like a loser. I know I wasn't a loser, but kind of felt like it. But I do recall on some of the, like the toughest weeks, I'd take the last 20 bucks I had in my pocket. I'd go get a haircut and I would walk out of the barbershop feeling like a million bucks. So through my own personal experiences, kind of growing up in my mom's shop and watching them do magic and, and helping people to feel better about themselves and walking into barbershops every other week and kind of walking out feeling amazing, I've always known that grooming self-care has the ability to help one feel better about themselves and kind of change a funky week or mood around. Yeah, so that really stuck with me. Um, went off post-college, did the adult thing. And the adult thing was to go and get the best job that you possibly can one that is high paying, that allows you to buy a bunch of stuff. And I kind of subscribed to that belief and I was miserable, right? I was miserable. I was working in finance at a market research firm, just kind of sitting behind a desk all day, looking at spreadsheets. And I was approaching 30 and it, and it was very, very clear to me that if I didn't make a move or do something, 
that I'd be 47 or 50 something and I'd be walking into work every day, kind of schlepping a cup of coffee in the newspaper, sitting behind an office and I'd be miserable and I didn't want to do that. And so I kind of made a decision that as I was approaching 30, that I would open my mind to whatever possibility or thing kind of stuck with me because I've always been kind of a dreamer, idea kind of person. I kind of did that. I opened up my mind one evening coming home from a long, miserable day of work on the train past this brownstone building that I must have passed over 500 times this particular day, noticed it. Wasn't necessarily feeling my best that day, and maybe that's why I noticed it and thought this brownstone building would make the perfect barbershop. Sort of had an epiphany from my time growing up in my mom's shop, my own personal experiences visiting barbershops regularly, and decided to open up a barbershop. Um, Six months later, did that. Noticed this recurring issue that our customers were having. By the way, I kept the daytime desk job as well because I still had bills to pay and responsibility. But noticed this recurring issue. Many of the customers visiting the shop, drive frizzy, damaged hair and beards, went home, played kitchen chemist, again, bored with the daytime desk job, learned everything I could about natural ingredients and how I could utilize those ingredients to solve the issues that our customers had and ended up creating a set of products that the customers thoroughly enjoyed so much that they were visiting our local shop in Newark, New Jersey from places like Brooklyn, New York and places in Connecticut, decided to launch a dot-com, built a nice sizable dot-com business before launching at retail at both Target and Walmart at not the greatest time, which was at the top of the pandemic, but had some success there. That's pretty much our story. And I think what really gets me excited about building uh, the business is our ability now to reach more consumers in retail with our mission, which we are super passionate about. It's what gets me out of bed and the team out of bed and motivated each and every day, which is to help men feel their best and live their best, most fulfilled lives. It's built into the DNA of the business. It's why I started the business. And so it's, it's something that we're really, really passionate about. I have so many questions bubbling up. I think that journey is a fantastic journey. And I love that you started with a job that you hated. It almost feels like with the guests that we have and becoming an entrepreneur, you have to have that first job that you really hate because you have that same epiphany. I can't do this for 20 years. I think that's maybe Denise for a future show. We should think about how you need that first job that you hate. But on that note, I would love to understand a little more. So you started your barbershop. You're hearing from your customers directly the challenges that they're having. You're not finding the type of product that's going to service them. So you go home and play kitchen chemist. From there, did you have some type of backing in this? Did you really just start playing with ingredients? And then when you got to something you like, how did you take the next step to producing it? Or did you produce it in your kitchen for the first period of time? So yes, I started from my kitchen. I didn't have any backing. I mean, I had the backing of a of a job, right? But I didn't have any real financial backing outside of that. I think at that time, it was more about just sort of the doldrums of working in finance and in a job that I hated. And so for me, you know, coming home evenings and weekends, I've always been a pretty good problem solver. I've always been pretty excited and passionate about solving problems and issues. And I saw this as like, a really great exercise to kind of flex my creative muscles while also doing something that that helped the customers in our shop. And so I think what I got more excited about this was not that I thought that it would be a business, but that it was sort of a hobby that allowed me to kind of escape 
from you know the the daytime desk job that I that I hated so much. But as things kind of laid out, it was like, hey, you know, your customers are really having these issues, and the products that you are creating, they're really gravitating to them, and they're and they're excited about using the products, and they're really effective. And so, over some time, and I'd say probably like a year, year and a half of like creating these products and selling them in the shop and having folks coming into the shop really noticed that, hey, we're actually really solving a problem and customers are really willing to pay for these, maybe there's something there. But kept at the daytime desk job because at that time, you know, wasn't generating enough revenue where I could say, hey, I could quit quit my job and like focus all of my time and attention on this. And then from there, starting to scale up. So it's one thing to be able to make product in your kitchen and not have the pressure of, you know, supplying a big organization, that is very different, right? And so how have you scaled up since you started developing all of this in your kitchen? It took some time, right? We, you know, initially we were, you know, a D2C brand. And so our focus was just on D2C and and the customers in our shop. And so my old home became like Scotch Border headquarters. I mean, literally the first floor, the basement, the entire house, except for like my bedroom, were stocked with ingredients and, you know, equipment to make, to make small batches. And I had like friends and family coming over to kind of help fill bottles and fill packaging and help ship orders out. And, you know, we had USPS come every day to our porch and, you know, they take hundreds of packages away. And so it was a labor of love and that's where we started. And then as some time went on, you know, we invested in a small manufacturing facility and, hired a customer service rep and then hired a batch maker that had, you know, some experience at L'Oreal making, you know, products like this. And so it definitely was a stair-step approach before we actually scaled up. And scale up is when we went to a manufacturing facility and had this all done sort of professionally and kind of vetted by professionals. And that we did that at the time that we were going into retail. We said, hey, we got to put on our big boy clothes. And we have to make some changes here to make sure that like all of our products are shelf stable and ready to be sold at mass. So it was a stair-step approach. So when you started to enter into retail, is that when you were also undergoing rebranding? Because I mean, for a company that hasn't been around very long, it's really interesting that you have already rebranded. One, Denise and I love this because I do feel like rebranding does need to happen more frequently. So the fact that you did it as quickly as you did, it speaks volumes about your business acumen. But I would love to understand, was that rebranding happening at the same time as manufacturing or was it part of the catalyst for going into the Targets and the Walmarts? What made you decide to do that? We had talked about rebranding because we were interested in retail and we realized that most shoppers shopping for products like ours, personal care products, were still spending most of their time finding those products at retail. And so we had talked about it, but I had participated in the Target Accelerator Program, the Beauty Accelerator Program. And through that process, had the opportunity to learn a lot more about retail and what it's like to work at retail and what supply chain needs to look like for the company. You know, also conversations about like packaging and pricing and what your product needs to look like on the shelf and how it needs to be able to communicate the value prop to a customer in a few seconds as they walk down the aisle. And so it was pretty clear through the accelerator program 
that there needed to be some optimization to our packaging, also our sizing and our pricing. And so, you know, after the Target Accelerator program, we immediately began to work on some of those things and also parallel path in terms of having conversations with the buyer because they were interested after the, the Accelerator program in the brand launching at a few stores and also parallel path moving to a contract manufacturer. So it was like, it was a ton of things happening at once. I'm not sure how our small team at that time of, we probably had like four people. I'm not sure how we did it, but with this passion and conviction and you're, you know, you're really passionate about the mission, I think you kind of find ways to, to solve complex issues. But that was a trying time, to say the least. It sounds like the Accelerator program was really that catalyst to help you rethink a lot of pieces of the brand, rethink the pricing and the sizing and how it's going to get communicated on a shelf. And that's oftentimes for an entrepreneur looking to scale, they need some tipping point for that to happen. It sounds like that's what the accelerator program was for you. It, no, it absolutely was. Got a real one-on-one on what it means to work with a retailer, mass retailer like Target, especially around things like supply chain. I know that's like a hot button topic for everyone. And then also like how you clearly communicate your value prop at retail. And one of the ways to obviously do that is packaging. So. And then did you tackle some of those things internally, meaning you got a list of things that you wanted to do or change and you tackled those internally? Or did you have some outside resources that you went to for expertise? How did you actually go about executing some of these changes? Yeah, so I mean, the team was super small. I mean, we had a customer service person. At the time, we had two marketing team members. So it was, it was a super small team. So we absolutely did have to utilize some outside resources in the form of consultants. And so through, you know, connecting with other folks, had met this wonderful woman who had done some work over at Anthropology, and she was a buyer, but she's also helped to develop products. So she helped with the design of our new packaging. And then I worked with another woman who had lots of experience. She was a chemist lots of experience on working with formulas. And she and I worked very, very closely together because we also redeveloped all of our existing products to make sure that they're shelf stable. And so we work with a few outside uh, resources to be able to execute on all of this because there was no way that we could do it in- internally. Wow, that's a huge undertaking. So totally understand the resources from the people standpoint. And Was it the same then? Were you, from a financial standpoint, were you able to self-fund this? Or was this one of the opportunities that you saw to go out and do some fundraising? It was definitely a difficult time. And so we had our D2C business going at the time. You know, D2C was pretty profitable business in the sense that you could put a dollar in and kind of see like four or five dollars in return. So we kind of leveraged some of those dollars. It wasn't a lot of dollars, though. (laughs) We leveraged some of those dollars. along with you know some purchase order financing because we had gotten a commitment from Target we leveraged that to do some purchase order financing to help with the you know initial launch and getting our packaging and components and whatnot together so uh, coupled a few of those resources together from an audience standpoint you know really knowing your audience we always find is really important particularly once you get on the shelf how are you going to execute selling off the shelf? And like you said, you know, you've repivoted the whole company to a new brand, a new look, a new feel to be able to sell at retail. So 
How did you then go about using your advertising dollars, like you said, to not only penetrate and make your D2C more profitable and engine move bigger and faster, but how did you target a specific audience to then also be able to sell off the shelf at store level? Yeah, so one of the beautiful things about being a D2C business first is being able to leverage your existing community. And so, you know, we have really loyal group of customers who love the brand, who love the products, who have been rocking with us for for many years. And so what we did first is before we rolled out the new packaging, the new branding, the new formulas to retail, we actually launched it on our D2C business. So, you know, maybe two, three months before the planogram reset for Target, which happened in March of 2020, in around November, we actually launched a new packaging and new products on our D2C to give our existing audience you know, a chance to, to sort of preview it, to talk about it, you know, to get feedback. And in terms of when we launched at retail, we leverage out of our email list. I think at the time we had an email list of over 200,000 folks that had purchased from us. We had a really good, loyal following on social, you know, so we leveraged heck out of our existing list. We did SMS blasts, tons of emails, some retargeting, right? Our existing list to go send them to Target. We really did leverage our existing customer base. Mailers, like we sent out some mailers. We use zip code, you know, zip code information for local Target stores to inform them that they can now pick up the product in their local Target store. So we leveraged the heck out of our list, which was beautiful to have, (laughs) to be honest with you. That is phenomenal. So all of those marketing initiatives and, and really focused on digital marketing as well, it sounds like some kind of geofencing Is that still done out of home or are you guys bringing that in-house now? Do you have somebody that does get up every day and really work on that list and making sure that you guys are putting all the initiatives into play or have you found an agency to work with to do that? It's a mix of both, right? So there's push and pull marketing activities. And so, you know, you work with a broker who helps to manage and work the relationship at, at Target. And some of that is like temporary price cuts and other promotions and you know, opportunities to have conversations with the retail about display opportunities and off-shelf opportunities, right? And then internally, you know, internally, the marketing team is working on things like influencers, having influencers go into a target. We call it pull up on SP where they go into a target, you know, they kind of pick up while they're sort of live streaming, you know, going to the shelf, kind of sharing some excitement behind picking up the product, but also using the product at home. And then there's also other things that we do. We work with an agency that helps with our dot-com presence on Target. So there's a host of internal and external resources that we leverage to manage all of our push and pull marketing activities at these retailers. We always love to kind of get some best practices or lessons learned because entrepreneurs going through similar scale-up things always can learn from each other. So I'm curious from your point of view, you know, looking back on what you didn't know at the time, do you have any advice or recommendations of kind of lessons learned or what you would do differently now that you're kind of underway, you've done your branding and so forth? Do you have any recommendations for brands looking to scale up? I would say, you know, sort of the number one thing, if we're talking about retail specifically, if you're interested in launching at retail, just it's incredibly important to make sure that you have the the proper resources, because it is just a different world (laughs) from D to C. 
I mean, uh, the financial commitment behind working with a retailer like a Target is huge. Just, just think about supply chain, right? In the beginning, on average, pre-COVID, maybe we carry two months of finished goods inventory. When you're working with a supplier or a business like Target, I mean, now you're having to carry probably nine to 12 months worth of finished goods. And then you also need to be able to stock componentry. And part of that is so that you can take advantage of any upside opportunities, because these retailers can come to you and say, hey, we'd like to place you on an end cap. <laughs> You know, to be able to supply them with that, you have to have sufficient inventory. And then the other thing is, is you don't know, you have metrics from vendors like Target that will tell you, hey, in order to be a success here, which is another important thing that I think every brand that's going to retail should be very clear on what those success metrics are. You have to be clear on those because what are you working to if you don't know what the, what the metrics are for success? But even with those success metrics, doesn't really dictate like what your sell-through is going to be, right? And so if you're doing incredibly well, you have to have sufficient inventory. You don't get second chances with not being able to to fill their shelves with product, right? Because another brand could be there taking your space and making money for Target. That's the one thing that I would say is like, when you're going to retail, be very, very prepared from a supply chain standpoint. The other thing is, you cannot just launch on a shelf and kind of hope and pray that the product is going to move off the shelf. You absolutely have to have push and pull marketing activities sort of laid out because that is super critical, right? If you're not meeting sort of the benchmarks for success, you will not stay there and you will not grow. It's super important to be very clear on what push and pull marketing activities and community building activities and things you're going to need to be successful at retail because you can't depend just being on, on shelf to, to actually move product. And then the other thing is just being incredibly clear on your value proposition and really making sure that you stand out amongst the competitive set. Like, why should I buy your product? And that needs to be articulated very clearly, not only to the end consumer, but to the retailer. Like, why does Target need a Scotch Porter? What unmet needs does Scotch Porter fulfill for Target? Does Scotch Porter bring in a new guest, right? These are some of the things that you need to consider when you're working with a retailer like Target or Walmart. Amen, Calvin. I want to take you on the road and put you in front of as many different brand owners as possible because we find the same. Um, you know, on previous shows, we've had guests as well, and they say the same thing. The easy part, surprisingly, is getting on the shelf. The hard part is getting off the shelf. It is. There's a huge financial commitment and there's a huge commitment in marketing and driving customers into the stores, as well as ensuring that your messaging and your point of difference is communicated well. So I could listen to you talk about this for hours. I think it's so on point and it really is valuable information for anybody looking to open up in a retail space. And even as a retailer buyers, they also appreciate when somebody comes in and understands here's what I'm really here to do. I'm here to introduce your customers to an amazing brand and to satisfy a need that they have. Then here's how we're going to do it. You're their best friend. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I think the other thing too is really getting support of the retailer and being seen as a thought leader is incredibly important. I, I mean, I can't tell you, we launched at both Target and Walmart at the same time. And in hindsight, that wasn't the best decision. <laughs> Because I think we could have gotten far more support had we not, you know, launched at both retailers at the same time. 
But I think what's very clear is that they seen the unique positioning of the brand and they looked at us as thought leader. And so that allowed us the opportunity to have conversations about, hey, when it comes to the BIPOC guest, this is how he should be served. This is what he's looking for. And hey, we have 200,000 folks on our list. Here are some surveys that we pulled. And this is what they're saying. And that they really value that. And so when they're thinking about potential off-shelf opportunities or a particular target TV campaign or something, the brand kind of comes top of mind when it seems like a real true partnership. So I think that's also important. And then circling back around to the fact that you mentioned, you know, launching two large national retailers at one time, where are you at on the shop side of things? Do you still sell the product B2B at salon level or have you moved in a different direction and your growth trajectory is at retail and D2C? We actually closed up the shop and I actually quit my job at the same time. And that was a while ago. That was many years ago. And the reason behind doing that is like I kind of was burned out, right? I had a a full-time job. You know, I had this barbershop. It was doing incredibly well and we had lots of customers. And then I'm running a product business. It was just, it was way too much. And so I had to prioritize and focus. And I really, really was passionate about Scotch Porter and building the brand. And so devoted all my time and attention to that and closed up the barbershop. And so, you know, we don't have a barbershop anymore, but we do sell to approximately 250 sort of smaller and chain barbershops across the U.S., Canada, and U.K. That's more organic. We don't actually really go out and sort of solicit those barbershops. They kind of come to us organically, either through customers that love our products and mention it to their barbers or, you know, businesses and or barbers that have used the product, seen the product, and want to bring it into their shops. So recently I woke up to a lot of beauty industry news of which you were at the top for closing a large amount of fundraising. Congratulations first on that, because that's, it's an impressively hard thing to do. So I'd love to hear if you have some time to share with us the process of what, you know, made it time to go out and fundraise and then really that process and what that was like for you. Yeah, so I think the need to go out and fundraise was just based on what we were seeing in terms of the growth of the business and and really the opportunity to scale up and scale up to reach more customers with, with our mission, which is what we're super passionate about. And so, you know, it was prime time. It was the right time. We were growing at retail. We've been in retail for about two years now. We're in over 5,000 doors and just the financial commitment behind scaling up at retail and the opportunity that we have, you know, to reach more customers, it just made sense. It was a process, right? It was probably like a six to seven month process. It was a very intentional process. And so I had had conversations with folks over the years. I want to say probably over the last two years that I've kept in contact with, right? VCs and just a whole host of conversations with multiple folks, some big VCs, some smaller VCs. And so when it was time for us to go out and raise some money, I at least had been having, you know, almost conversations semi-annually with some of these folks and had built some relationships. And so it was like tapping into those folks but then also incorporating some other individuals that we thought might be really great partners. And so it was a lengthy process. You know, the Series B due diligence process is very different from a Series A or even a seed round, I'd say, in terms of kind of 
what they want to see and what's needed. And so it was definitely a lengthy process. But I also, what I've found incredibly important along this journey of entrepreneurship is making sure that I have people around me that have success in particular areas. And so we engaged with a group, a smaller group that had done some fundraising in the past. They've done some CFO fractional workforce. They currently still do it. Um, and so they have experience in the beauty space and the metrics behind it and putting together financial performance statements and just a ton of things. And we leveraged and worked with them uh, in this fundraising round and they helped with the process and you know, speaking with some VCs and jumping in where necessary and allowing me to be the founder. So I find it incredibly important to surround yourself with people that have sort of been there and done that. And they've advised me incredibly and have helped me to make not only the best decisions for the company, but the best decisions for me as the founder as well. I would not have known to ask for certain things if I had not surrounded myself around the right people. So I think that's also very, very important for founders. I think that's phenomenal advice because you are tied to your company. So you as an individual and as a founder and what's best for the company, those may be different things and require different types of questions and understanding to make that best decision. So congratulations. It's truly remarkable in the short space of time what Scotch Porter has done and what you at the helm have, starting from your kitchen, grown with and the fact that you can sit here with us and go through all these different aspects, I love the fact that you know these things inside and out. And I feel like there's a hundred more hours I could pick your brain <laughs> and really benefit the greater community from. So thank you so much, Calvin, for the time, for your knowledge and your and your life lessons and company lessons you've shared. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you. It's been great talking to you both. And I know that there's going to be people that want to reach out to you out there and find out how you did it or seek some advice. So if people do want to reach out to you, how can they do that? Yeah. So you can reach me at on Instagram at Calvin underscore Qualis. And then of course, you can follow us on Scotch Porter, right? Scotch Porter on Instagram. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, your information, your passion. And I'm really, really glad that that first job didn't work out so well for you because it turns out that it worked out really well for you in the end and everyone else. So great life lessons. And thank you so much, Calvin, for joining us. We look forward to having you on future episodes. Thanks for having me. This has been Beauty Is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>